0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This
2: is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jannigan.
0: We'll start out the show by thinking. The people who subscribe to our Patreon, you can subscribe there at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We've just offered a new thing on our Patreon at the $10 tier. We'll be recapping two excellent thrillers, trashy thrillers every month Yeah, at the $10 level. So if you enjoyed July
2: Movie Club. There's more where that came from. You're
0: really going to love
2: this. Um, do we know when is the winners? Because we let people vote in a poll, right? The, we're going to pick the top. Yeah, you can vote. If you're at the
0: $10 tier, you can vote for which movies. Like Desi and I picked five movies and you can vote. And we pick the top two each month. If your movie that you really wanted did not get picked... It'll come back around. Yeah. We'll get to it eventually. We'll put
2: those losers back in the next poll. Yeah,
0: (laughs) absolutely we will. So you can pick, you guys get to pick the movies that we recap. And
2: what what was your question (laughs) originally? I didn't didn't know if the poll was finished. The poll is still up. So you can still
0: vote in September's poll. It'll be up for a few
2: more days. And then we will record the episodes. I'm already sad for the movie who keeps getting rejected month after month. <laughs> <laughs> like, is there going to be some sad Susan Lucci of a movie? There absolutely is. <laughs> and I think
0: I think I already know which movie it's going to be because people don't know how good it is.
2: Oh, okay. Well, maybe we have to... Uh... Them.
0: One of our listeners commented on the poll and he was like, I cannot believe this movie is losing. Do they even know how good it is? And oh. I'm like, yeah, it's a great movie. Okay. But you know what? We will do that one eventually. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's thank the people who oh, yeah. have Let, donated. Oh, yeah. Let's do
0: what we originally set out to do. Thanking the people who subscribed. Uh, this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I fucking lost my place. <laughs> We have E, Aaron, Chris, Amy, Jennifer, Claire, Deanna, Shelby, Kim, Miss Ham.
2: Ooh, that's a great name. Yeah, is Miss- she? Is it hard as a motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> is it all capped? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Miss Ham, Marlesa, Kiara, Teddy, Paul, Junkyard Honey. Ooh, C, Cynthia. Rebecca, Jasmine, Emily, Sylvia, Libby, Emily, Josh, Nitty,
2: Shalane, Heather. And that's it. Thank you all so much. Thank you, guys. Okay. So I guess in the grand tradition of Titanic, we're back to a behind the scenes, how was this movie made type deal. Uh, And this week, we're going to be talking about the making of The Godfather. Now, this story actually has a ton of crime in it. There's a lot of mob action happening during the filming of this movie. There was so much, in fact, that it's going to be a two-parter. Because at some point, I was like midway through the book, and I'm like, oh, I'm already at like five thousand words. Yeah, like it was. I was just like, okay, that's when I texted you. So yeah, this is a movie that has almost as much drama behind the scenes as it does in the movie. Um, there was recently a TV docu series, I guess, called The Offer. I think it was on Paramount Plus. It was about the making of this movie. And that's where I kind of started thinking about, oh, I should do this because this story is incredible. Now, as we all know, The Godfather and its sequel, not including number three, <laughs> are considered two of the greatest movies of all time. And they really launched the careers of people like Al Pacino, who was unknown at the time uh, of this movie came came out. Director Francis Ford Coppola, he had a reputation as being a real pain in the ass, and he didn't really have a lot of hits to back it up. He was trying to create his own production company because he didn't want to work for the studios. It's also the comeback for Marlon Brando, who was literally persona non grata in Hollywood. No one wanted to hire him. And it also saved Paramount Studios as well as Robert Evans' career. The book I used for this episode is called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, an iconic line from the movie. (laughs) One of my favorite lines, because that's something I get. You kill someone, you take the cannoli in the back seat. You gotta, right? Um, This book is written by Mark Seal. So we're going to get started, and there's some background information uh, before we even get to the story that is important. The sort of seed for this book, The Godfather, um, was a 1961 murder on Thanksgiving day of that year, a body was found burned to a crisp. Eventually they were able to tell the man was severely tortured before his body was burned. There's a lot of gruesome things they were able to pick out um, despite the burning. And one of the biggest signs that it was maybe mob connected was his penis was cut off and shoved into his mouth. They really do that? Yes. So Obviously, this is a sign to investigators that this man was threatening to talk in some way. The body is eventually identified as Alberto Aguici. He is a Toronto baker whose real gig was smuggling heroin in from Italy. So he did this for Stefano Magadino, who was the New York crime boss. I'm sorry, the crime boss in Buffalo, New York. His brother Vito, Alberto's brother Vito, vows to avenge his brother's death and this will set off a chain of events that eventually leads to the most detailed and graphic glimpse into the world of La Cosa Nostra the world has ever seen. Alberto uh, was friends with another mid-level gangster named Joseph Valachi. They met in prison, and Alberto was pissed about something with um, this Stefano, the crime boss, and he was going off in prison. He would not shut up his mouth off. He was threatening to bring them all down. And Velacci was like, dude, keep your mouth shut, because he has people everywhere, and they, this will get out that you're talking shit like this in prison. Velacci's prediction comes true, obviously, when Alberto get, is released from prison and is almost immediately uh, killed. He has another problem now, though, Velacci Veto. Vito is convinced that Velacci is the one who snitched on Alberto saying shit in prison. This reaches um, Vito, I'm sorry, Genovese, the head of the, is his name Vito? It says video. i sorry. <laughs> I think it must be Vito Genovese, who's obviously a major crime boss in New York. He's convinced Velacci is also a snitch and he wants Velacci dead. At this point, Velacci has no choice but to become what he's being accused of, a snitch. He reaches out to the FBI, and the mob had already taken a hit out on him. But before um, he was, uh, they he was under protective custody, though, so it was way too late, and he was going to prepare to testify against the mob. Now, on September of 1963, if you might might remember, like Bobby Kennedy was the Attorney General, and he was going after the mob in a big way during this period. Volacci testifies before con- Congress, and this is like the first time a lot of America got this in-depth look at the inner workings of how the mafia worked. Uh, He basically tells everything from how the um, regions are segmented. He goes into all about the foot soldiers, the capos, and the godfathers. One of the millions of people riveted to their TVs during this testimony is a dead broke writer named Mario Puzo. So he's watching this testimony... And at this time, he is going nowhere fast. He's not even really a writer yet. Um, he he does start to try to get into the publishing world, but he was recently dropped by his publisher. He kind of does pulp writing. Um, he's $20,000 in debt to loan sharks. And he himself is under FI, FI, FIB, FBI investigation. Puso was an Puzo was an army clerk, and there was an allegation of bribery in his unit. Basically, he was taking money to ensure someone wasn't drafted. And they had physical evidence of him basically taking these bribes. He was never prosecuted, but did leave his civil service job eventually. And his future was pretty bleak. He started back again writing the Pulp Fiction. And he really became a prolific schlock writer. And he wrote for like the magazines. He wasn't putting out books. Unfortunately, the only thing he liked more than writing was gambling. This guy, he was like the classic fucking... Addicted gambler, where he was always in debt. Right, he never won, but he still couldn't stop. Like it's just like crazy. And the more money he earns, the more he just fucking sends down the hole right. gambling. So he eventually writes a um, sort of semi-autobiographical novel called The Fortunate Pilgrim. That bombs, and he is back in the gutter. The publishers who drop him after this book bombs says maybe if the book had been more about the mafia, it would have done better. Now, he had like a few scenes that were based on his childhood. Mario, like throughout his life, says he never grew up with um, any mob people in his life. Like he didn't know that world at all. Um, But he did tell a story where his mom it was like the classic story where someone hands her a bag full of guns and he's like, just keep this for me. <laughs> and then they come back later and take it. And then she's kind of under his protection for the rest of his life. And it was like, these guys were in the neighborhood, like everywhere. And yeah. you kind of just went along with them and they took care of you. So that was sort of, uh, I think a story he kind of mentions in this book. Um, and he's like someone who's also like, even though he's writing this pulp stuff, he thinks of himself as an artist. He thinks he can do something really great. Uh, he also always tells people, like, I could write a bestseller if I wanted to, but I'm an artist I and I'm trying to like do it. something else. Like, it's easy to do that if I wanted to. Uh, so at this point, he's like, well, where has that gotten me? And he begins working on what he calls the Mafia novel. He really throws himself into this at some point and just gets very into researching it, uh, reading all those transcripts again from the Valachi hearings Um, And he's focusing in on a particular witness at these hearings, a man named Frank Costello. And he's someone who they brought up that was really belligerent and not giving them any uh, information. And this becomes like an early model for Vito Corleone. So Mario decides that uh, it wasn't going to just be about the mob. It's going to be primarily about a family. So it's like a family drama set amongst the world of the mafia. In particular, obviously, the Corleone family. Uh, So people start reading these stories he's coming up and like the loose drafts he's um, sort of sending them. And they're really into these stories, especially the stories about Johnny Fontaine, who is based on Frank Sinatra. And this is where his pulp background really comes into play because... Johnny has a lot of sex scenes in the initial drafts of these books. Um, These are racy scenes between uh, the Frank Sinatra type character and what appears to be a character based on Ava Gardner. And they're in this volatile relationship that is very sexual and very violent. And people are like eating this shit up. Uh, As interest grew from publishers and friends, he starts becoming bored. He's like, eh, now that people are interested, I don't want to do it. I want to write something different. Luckily, the IRS is breathing down his neck over um, back taxes, so it gets him back on track writing his bestseller. Luckily. Yeah.
0: that's, what, <laughs> that's Is that the one time where it's a good thing when the IRS are, breathe, yes, are breathing down absolutely. your neck? absolutely.
2: Because it's like he needed his ass kicked. He like needed, He <laughs> needed someone coming after him other than loan sharks to get him back on track. He
0: needed a little motivation to <laughs> totally. crank
2: out that hit. And at least the IRS aren't going to kill him like the loan sharks probably would eventually. So um yeah the characters like I said are just like flowing out of him at this point he has Sonny the hot-headed oldest son Fredo the weak pathetic son and Michael the pride and joy of the family he brings honor to them by being a war hero and he's not going to be in the family business Uh so the plot points are all kind of coming together and are all based on real events including the big wedding scene that opens the movie there's a scene where the Godfather is gunned down buying fruit. That happened in real life. And the assassination of Mo Green, who is kind of the Jewish mobster, who is the one kinda. who- Kind ho- of. Well, yeah. yeah that kind <laughs> kinda. Kind, he that, was. That prototype, though, yes. uh, who sets up the Vegas stuff and gets like all into the Vegas stuff. Right. So inspiration was really everywhere. At a dinner with writer Guy Talese, he meets Guy's wife, Nan, and he's like, that's Kay. So he uses her as an inspiration for Kay. After writing 100 pages, he's shocked when he gets a call from a man named George Weiser. Now, Weiser is someone who works uh, closely with Hollywood. He has the inside track on everything that's about to be published or books that are in the process of being published. So he can let movie producers know what materials they can buy before they're even published. And you know they can get them really cheap at that point, probably. He tells Robert Evans, the newly installed head of Paramount, about the Mafia novel and at this point, Robert is desperate for a hit. Paramount is really struggling and he flies Mario out to Hollywood for a meeting. Puso, he offers him, I think, $10,000. Puso gets him up to $12,500 to buy the rights to this unfinished book. Now, at this point, Robert Evans, he just, like, they just buy stuff and they're kind of like, yeah, we'll probably never hear from the, him again. But, like, five months later, he gets a call from Puso again and he's like, is it okay if I change the movie to the the name of the book to The Godfather. Wait, it really was just called The Mafia? Yes. The (laughs) Mafia book? The Mafia novel. (laughs) I mean, maybe he would have had another name eventually, but so he's like, so Robert's like, oh, I guess he's still working on it. Now, by the end of the late 60s, Paramount, like I mentioned, is really not making a lot of money. They're just not making movies that people want to see. The movie industry in general is kind of struggling. It's a real, like, transition point between old Hollywood and like the new wave of filmmaking that comes sort of in the 70s, Um, people are really writing these like death of the movie industry type articles. A man named Charles Bladorn, who owns, he owns Paramount at this time. He's not really um, a movie creative type. He's an industrialist, which I don't even know what that exactly means. I think it just means he buys things. This is before Robert Evans? No, it's around the same time. Late, late sixties. Yeah. Uh, So he, but my, my point is that he buys Paramount, but it's really because it's like a brand name yeah. and he has an opportunity to buy it. It could have been Simmons mattresses. He just wants like a brand name. So he's not the type to really work on anything. If it's not making money, he wants out, right? He's just a businessman. So he tells Evans that they really need a miracle to survive and on Christmas 19, Christmas Day 1970, they get their miracle when Love Story is released. So Evans very quickly becomes this boy wonder savior of Paramount, but it's a very short-lived uh, reprieve because they really need another massive hit to kind of put Paramount permanently back on its feet. And little did they know that they already had this miracle. It just wasn't um, finished yet. So while finishing the book, Mario Puzo decides to hunker down at the Sands Hotel and Casino in Vegas. <laughs> if you know his history, this is not exactly the best idea for him. Is he going to blow that money? Well, he he blows even more than he has because he gets a line of credit. Oy. So... It does become a treasure trove of information for him about how the mafia works. He becomes like best friends with a roulette wheel operator, and this guy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> is that what they're called? No, it was uh, croupier. A croupier. But
0: that's not what was funny. I, <laughs> there was such a big pause in between operator and roulette wheel. I
2: because I didn't know what they were called. He, I mean, I've heard the word croupier. But he I becomes I don't
0: know. best friends with a roulette wheel. Oh, roulette wheel operator. Yeah.
2: Well, he probably was best friends with the roulette world, too. I like roulette. It sounds... I like the idea of roulette, but I don't know how it works. It's very fun. Yeah. So he also meets a guy named High, High Battle, Badal, uh, who was an associate of Meyer Lansky's. And he meets... Putzo and he's not impressed with him. He's like, this guy doesn't know jack shit about how things work. Hi said that? Yes. And he he's actually like angry with him. He's also angry at the idea of how the mafia is seen in general. He's like, everyone's like, they're all killers, but we're businessmen. Does he I, think he's a poser? <laughs> yeah, he thinks he's kind of a poser. And he's like, we're businessmen running legitimate con- casinos licensed by the state of Nevada. I like mean, that's his line. That is true. Yeah. Uh, So High is definitely sort of serves as a little bit of inspiration for the Mo Green character as well. Now, while doing research in Vegas, he's getting these lines of credit. He's going deeper and deeper into debt. He eventually gets kicked out of the sands and goes over to the Flamingo, but he's earning a reputation as someone who's running up these credit lines and has no way of paying for them. Uh, So he also finds inspiration for the movie's iconic, one of the most iconic lines in the movie at the uh, Sands while he's there. Um, There's a story that goes around the Sands that actor David Jansen, who starred in the TV show The Fugitive, got very raucous one night and created a huge scene in the casino. A casino manager at some point pulls him aside, whispers in his ear something, and the actor, actor instantly calms down. Now, when this casino manager is asked what he said, he replies, I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And this becomes legend amongst the casino workers. They think this is just like hilarious that this happened. They eventually pass it on to Puzo. Obviously, this is a very famous line in the movie. Of course, Puzo never wants to act like he got information from anywhere but his own life. Uh, And he's like, no, my mom actually said that to me. But it's like... Come Why on. would your mom Why say would that? Mom, when would your mom ever have an opportunity to say something like that? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, but that's a common thread with him. I think he's his ego just can't... It's like it's still cool that you're like, that's a good story to put in my book. Like yeah. You made a decision there. So as I mentioned, he's running this huge gambling debt, so much so that he began fearing for his life, this roulette, this croupier... <laughs> Who he befriended said to him, "As long as he stayed in Vegas, he was safe, as there was a no contract policy in Vegas, meaning they couldn't put hits on anybody while in town. Really? Yeah, because they they had made some deals with law enforcement that they wouldn't bring that drama into Vegas. But if you left, if you went in the desert or by Lake Mead, then all bets were off. You right. could get killed there. So the safest th- thing to do was stay in Vegas. So." Uh, At this point, Puzo had some really powerful people, though, invested in his survival. Evans and Paramount hear about these issues he's having, and they clear his debt so Puzo could go back to New York and finish the book. Now, he finally finishes the book, turns it into his agent, and goes on a European vacation with his family, where he racks up even more gambling debt. Oy, did, <laughs> did, did he go to, to, to Monte Carlo? To Monte Carlo? Which, by the way, someone told us is in Monaco. Okay. That's now, a lot of M's. But <laughs> well, what about Montenegro? <laughs> and some people also knew the town from dinos, or the country, the fake country. So embarrassing. Monzo.
0: Yeah. Such an embarrassing conversation. A lot of M's.
2: Um, so when he returns, he immediately goes to his agent, and he's like, ah, "Can I get a little more advance money <laughs> to pay off these debts I incurred in Europe?" And it was then that he was informed that Fawcett Paperbacks had bought the rights to the paperbacks for *The Godfather* for a record-breaking four hundred and ten thousand dollars, which was the highest paperback rights anyone had ever sold for. Damn. This is about $3 million in today's money. And that's just the paperback. Right. So Puso is actually like in disbelief. He's like 40,000. Like he can't believe how high it is. And obviously this is just life-changing money. In March of 1969, the hardcover was released. It's a huge hit. And people are literally like, marveling at how compulsively readable it is. It's like a book you can't put down. It eventually reaches number one and it stays at number one for several months. Like it is a huge hit. At the age of 48, Mario Puzo is finally the success he's always dreamed of being. And we'll take a break here and get back to it.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or
1: SleepNumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel dot H-C-S.
2: Obviously, people start talking. A lot of people speculate that he was more involved with the mob than he said he was because the book is so authentic. Even Sammy the Bull Gravano, who is like John Gotti's... Was he like his hitman uh, who eventually turns on Gotti? He's like, I don't believe uh, he could have written this without having some assistance from the mob. He's like, he nailed the way we talk. He nailed the atmosphere. Everything is very real. Even the scene where Michael makes his first kill brought back memories for Sammy of his own first kill. (laughs) Sweet, precious memories. (laughs) Like, he, like, nailed the whole way you would feel in that moment,
0: et cetera. Oh, there was probably so much more realism in this novel than in, say, the gangster movies from the 30s and 40s that were like, yeah, see? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pop you (laughs) with my Tommy gun.
2: Yeah. Yeah. there's even a rumor that the mob paid him a million dollars to write the book so that it would humanize them in some way. The book almost becomes a Bible for certain gangsters. like They really love it, and it's a huge sensation. People want to see this movie on the, the big screen. Robert Evans' $12,500 amounts buying the rights is looking very smart at this point because it is a massive hit, and he would have never gotten it if he had bought these rights after the fact. So, Things are about to get very difficult for him, though. The mob, outside of the people who are into it as as a Bible, they're they're upset about the making of the movie, and they're beginning to demand their share of the action. They're like, Mm. hey, why can't we get a piece of this? It's about us. We're the mob. (laughs) Um, He's also having issues with Paramount's distribution department. They don't want to make the movie because Paramount recently had a very huge bomb with a gangster flick called Brotherhood. So they're like, we don't want to do this again. People aren't interested in mob movies. The project gets stalled out until one day Burt Lancaster offers Paramount $1 million for the rights uh, to The Godfather. That sort of like spurs them on. They're like, oh, wait, people do want this movie because if he's willing to pay a million dollars, it must be valuable. That's like how the movie industry always is in an annoying way. And they start looking for a producer who can do the movie for cheap. Enter Albert Ruddy. He is a former TV writer who made his name creating the show Hogan's Heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Which we have talked about. This scene is very funny in the offer. Because it it was such a like, holy shit, he created Hogan's Heroes? Like, it was just such a weird random detail. (laughs) And we see the Hogan's Heroes pitch, which is like... If you know the show, it is wild that someone walked into a TV studio to pitch a show like Hogan's Heroes, which is just, you know, a Nazi comedy with Nazis and like whatever. <laughs> it's just very funny pitch. So he really wants to get into movie production and Evan, Evans hires him despite the fact that he has no experience in producing film. He quickly earns a reputation for getting projects in on time and under budget Evans wants um Charles Bloodhorn to kind of like he needs um Ruddy to get Charles Bloodhorn to approve the movie. And he does this in a it's like a very famous um like you know anecdote from Hollywood. He goes into this non-movie guy, this businessman. Um he's he literally hadn't even read the the book. He reads it on his flight to New York to meet Charles Bloodhorn. He goes into the into the meeting and he pitches it to Bloodhorn by saying I want to make an ice blue terrifying film about the people you love or the people we love, which is a great description because it's like you like these people in this movie. And it's similar to Sopranos. Yeah, It's like we like them and then all of a sudden they're doing something completely horrific. right? And it's very uh, disturbing. So he gets the job. He hires Puzo to write the script, which is very unusual at the time, to hire the novelist uh, to write the movie script. And Puzo is off to Hollywood. He gets hooked up. He's, like, living in the Beverly Hills Hotel. He's living high on the hog and a long way from Bayshore, Long Island. He's, like, in the thick of Hollywood. Now, it's Mario who originally suggests Marlon Brando for the role of the godfather. At the time, Marlon Brando is considered box office poison. Uh, Ruddy has Robert Redford in mind for the role of Michael Corleone. And Puzo is disgusted by (laughs) this choice. Uh so casting is a long way off, but they're sort of just kind of pontificating who they want to see cast, and they're finishing up the script. Now, Al Reddy had to not only keep Mario on track uh, as far as writing the script go, his Mario's wife was also like, You gotta keep his diet on track as well. Wait. Because Mario's <laughs> Puzzo's wife, he she's she's like an Italian wife, and she's like, and he's gotta lose. Because he's like, has a lot of health issues. This is not the healthiest guy. He eats a lot of bad food. He's Italian. He loves to eat. He's he's Italian. He eats a lot of Italian food. They talk about him eating. He's like, he'll get like two of everything. And I was like, well, we do that too. Uh, I was like, I like Mario. uh, We literally ordered two entrees to ourselves like last night we share an entree for an appetizer yeah, like that
0: we did so that. Mar-
2: Ruddy actually starts eating every meal with him in order to keep him sort of on track and at some point he's like I'm losing weight but he's continuing to gain weight and then he gets to he goes to a pizza place with his family Ruddy goes to a pizza place with his family one day and the owners are like we love Mario <laughs> and Ruddy is like how do you know him <laughs> <laughs> he's like we deliver a pizza to him every night <laughs> at the Beverly <perfectly laughs> So he was totally just ordering pizza every night and eating the whole pie. Love it. So the diet wasn't going that well, but the script writing is going pretty well. He turns in the first draft and they go to a celebratory dinner at Chasen's. While having drinks at the bar, Mario sees his idol Frank Sinatra walk into the restaurant. Now, Puzo is in awe of like seeing Frank, but Ruddy quickly realizes they need to sneak out as fast as possible. Before The Godfather was even published, Sinatra's lawyers were making demands to see the manuscript, and Sinatra is furious about the character of Johnny Fontaine. He was considering suing to stop production on the movie. That's how mad he was about this uh, part. Ruddy had to say uh, goodbye to a friend, so he says to Mario, "'Stay right here. Don't move. I'll be right back.'" While Reddy is gone, this other guy comes up to Mario. and He's like, hey, you got to meet Frank Sinatra. <laughs> he takes uh, Mario over to Frank's table. And Mario is like unaware of Frank's hatred of him at this point. So this guy introduces him to Frank and Frank immediately says, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> and then he gets angry and he's like, he adds, I don't want to meet him. Now, Mario is trying to get the hell out of there at this point, and the guy who introduced him immediately bursts into tears, begging Frank for his <laughs> forgiveness. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry, Frank. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know. And Frank is like, It wasn't your fault. Now, at this put point, Puzo says, It wasn't my idea, meaning getting introduced. And Frank thinks he means it wasn't his idea to create the character of Johnny Fontaine. So he starts questioning him, him, Mario, about whose idea it was. Now, Mario's got a huge ego himself. And he says, no, I meant it wasn't my idea about the introduction. <laughs> Frank fucking loses it. He goes bright red. Steam is like literally coming out of his ears. He's screaming at Mario Puzo, calling him a pimp. Puzo says what hurt him the most was that a Northern Italian like Frank was threatening a Southern Italian with physical violence. Uh, He's like, that's like Einstein pulling a knife on Al Capone. I didn't know there was some rivalry between Northern and Southern Italian. Yeah, But I guess based on this, Northern are considered weaker and Southern are the tough guys. I have no idea. Eventually, Frank is yelling at him to choke. Yeah, I gotta choke. (laughs) And people are holding Mario (laughs) back because Mario is about to go off on Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Ruddy eventually drags Mario out uh, so things don't come to blows. Now, Mario, on the way home, he starts getting more upset about the situation because he says, my mom had two picks in our house growing up, the Pope and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> so this is like devastating to him at this point that Frank hates him so much. But then he says it also gave him a little confidence because he's like, I must be really important for Frank to hate me that much. Okay. So I'm glad he could uh, find the silver lining. Now, besides they had bigger fish to fry, they needed to find the perfect director. And he needed to be Italian. Because according to Evans, when you watch this movie, you needed to smell the spaghetti.
0: Are you serious? <laughs>
2: yes. Did he, did he say that? He said that. <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> he needed to smell the spaghetti. About,
0: Look, I guess that's his, his way of saying it, it needs to be authentic. It, it, need, it needs to be authentic. It needs to be from an Italian American
2: perspective. Yes. okay, That's the nicer way of putting it. it
0: needs, you need to smell the spaghetti,
2: <laughs> the spaghetti. Look, there's a lot of this sort of, I was like, okay, Italians have a little right to be angry <laughs> in some of this language. So there's no Italian directors available at this point with any sort of real credible experience to pull off a movie like this. Peter Bart, who was at the time working um, on a movie for Paramount, has a controversial suggestion, Francis Ford Coppola. Now, Coppola at the time is considered kind of a a mad genius, but he's a very difficult, he has a bad reputation in the studio system. Um, So, Bart really pushes the fact that he's Italian. He... (laughs) He's like he's, he's the one. Italian. He's the one Italian director we have. So he really wants Coppola to do well in this meeting. So he has a pre-meeting with Coppola, or he gives him a valium. Well, he gives him a talking to. He says, "Don't be so cerebral when you're talking. Cerebral, cerebral when you're talking about this movie. Talk about Italian recipes, pasta. You know, Italian Wait, what? shit." <laughs> The one thing these guys know about Italian is that they like pasta. Why? Because he's, he's meeting with a bunch of
0: Jews exactly. in, the, in, this, in the meeting. And he's like, this is something that they, they can
2: understand.
0: It Gabagool.
2: Says, Gabagool. Talk about it's, Italian meats. Salami. <laughs> like prosciutto.
1: Just incredible. Um, so
2: Coppola is desperate to escape Hollywood. As I mentioned, he has started his own studio, Zoetrope. That's in uh, San Francisco, San Francisco based. But this is on the verge of collapse as well, because he's obviously not great at money and financing. He is an artist. He's very young too. He's only 30, 30, between 30 and 32 during this period. And as I mentioned, he has a really bad reputation as being so difficult, running up budgets, et cetera. So, (laughs) he's also on the verge of financial ruin and he is desperate to save his production company. So after some encouragement from his friend, George Lucas, who he works with closely up, up in Northern California, he begins doing uh, his own research into the history of the mob, trying to like find something he could connect to. And he begins to find it very interesting. He rereads the Godfather and now he sees it for what it could be an epic family tragedy and he even sees it kind of with like... It's like this king who has three sons. Each of them have a quality of the father. And it's kind of like a classic succession story. King Lear. Yeah. But, but with sons. Right? Because right? Yes. King Lear's daughters. Yes. Um, so that sort of starts getting him uh, interested. His like creative juices are flowing. So he agrees to do it uh, if they sell it not as a mob story, but a family story. And then he adds a metaphor for American capitalism. And Evans is literally like, fuck off. Like he is furious. Wait, really? Yeah. Cause he doesn't want fucking Coppola's bullshit, like artistic <laughs> shit coming in. And it like infuriates Robert Evans when he brings up American capitalism for some reason. Uh, So eventually, though, Coppola blows everyone away with his presentation, including Bloodhorn. And on September 29th, 1970, it is announced that he will direct the film adaptation of The Godfather. This film will save Paramount's ass. And shooting begins in January of 1971.
0: You want it to smell
2: like spaghetti. (laughs) It's going to smell like fucking spaghetti. I cannot get over that. (laughs) Now, as I mentioned, this is really a war this becomes even more of a war between the old guard, like Evans, of filmmaking and the new guard, Coppola. Others consider... This is often considered one of the great wars in all of cinema between these two guys during the production of this movie. Robert Evans would later say he and Coppola had a perfect record. They didn't agree on anything. Mm. So Francis immediately goes to work on fixing the script. He loves Puzo's script, but it just needs to be more what he wants. Like, I think... I think Puzo's script opens with, like, a fucking scene with uh, Johnny Fontaine. Obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know that's not how it opens. <laughs> um, <laughs> they eventually go to Reno to work on it together, and d- and d- Francis kind d- of, of like...
0: <laughs> a wait a minute. Th- w- was that Mario's idea
2: to go to I, Reno? Honestly, I think it was a mutually beneficial uh, arrangement, because Mario could go... lose tens of thousand dollars on the casino (laughs) floor and Coppola could be like working on the script without interference from Mario, but look like he was still helping. It's sad how much I relate to Mario. He loves to gamble, but he's not good at it
0: (laughs) as an addict who also orders two entrees at dinner and love loves to gamble. I get it. He,
2: he's a man of his vices. He loves his vices and there's nothing wrong with living that way. If it's okay. Like as long as it's not hurting, hurting anyone, anyone. Like, you know, he's hurting himself, I guess. But who cares? He's living life to the fullest. So he's, is <laughs> mining his book for gold. Like, he's just going through it. There's like a scene in the book where Coppola literally is ripping pages out and cutting out things and like laying it on the wall to kind of piece it together. Um, so his first major goal that he finds when he starts doing this with the book is a small scene of an undertaker who goes to the godfather for help after his daughter is beaten and raped and no authorities do anything. This leads to the iconic opening scene. Uh, and in the first line of the movie that's said by this undertaker, Bonasera, he says, I believe in America. And that's the beginning of the movie. It is something I always forget. And I recently rewatched this movie and it is so striking when it happens because it, it's like perfect. Um, casting also kind of Uh, officially begins Um, when Evans tells the press they want to cast unknowns for the movie they don't want any famous Hollywood stars a frenzy happens across America every amateur Italian (laughs) everywhere in the country thinks they're going to be in this movie yeah yeah so they began begging for parts. Even famous people like lawyer Melvin Belli, he he sends a letter saying he wants to play Don Corleone, like Don Vito Corleone, the lead of the movie, right? Because uh, everyone's like, yeah, I'm an amateur. Sure, I'll 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 take the lead role. Even real mobsters are clamoring for a part in the movie. Uh, casting the casting directors and and whoever works in casting are being sent dead fish wrapped in newspaper, like. Well- <laughs> I don't know what that, they think that's going to get them in the door. A young woman auditions for a small role. After she auditions, one of her admirers calls the casting director and threatens he'll break her, break his legs if she isn't cast. So, I mean, they're not the most subtle. <laughs> um, people are coming into Paramount's New York offices um, checking for wires before they sit down and talk about getting parts. Like oh. that's the level. They're also offering to finance the movie. They're like, yeah, <laughs> if you need a little extra money, I'd love to finance this movie. Andrea Eastman, who is the New York casting director, director, she gets like all of these sinister calls about a man named Mr. Dante, and the calls are threatening her, saying if they want to film the movie in New York, they better use Mr. Dante. She has no idea who Mr. Dante is, but these calls happen multiple times per day, and they get more and more aggressive and sinister. She's actually at a meeting uh, soon after these calls start happening, and she starts relating to th- this story about Mr. Dante to a man she meets at the meeting called Mr. Butters. <laughs> 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 now, it turns out this man is a mobster named George Butterassed LAUGHTER
0: Wait a minute.
2: His middle. His nickname is Butterass. <laughs> wait, wait a minute.
0: Wait a minute. His nickname is Butterass. His name
2: in the book it says George in in quotation marks Butterass Chico <laughs> Okay. That's-
0: I thought his full name was Butterass the no.
2: no, his his like his big pussy name is Butterass. <laughs> that's a great nickname. He's a capo in the Gambino crime family, so he has a he's like pretty high up. But yeah, that what a, I mean, mobster names can be highly amusing. A, amusing, like I sometimes they're
0: very funny. There are some just fantastic gangster names out there.
2: Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, so. He asked Andrea if she wanted him to drop Mr. Dante (laughs) out of the window. And she's like, no, that's okay. It's not really that big of a deal. But she said that guy never called her about Mr. Dante again. So whatever happened ended the phone calls. Uh, Back in Hollywood, Italian actors start picketing Paramount, demanding Italian actors get Italian roles. So a lot of these wannabe actors are you know, assaulting people on the studio lot to get in. They're assaulting the other protest the people protesting in front of Paramount, which is, you know, we've driven by that a million times. It's yeah. like the famous Paramount Gates. People are coming in with guns to audition for these roles. Um, they hint about their connections to make filming easy in certain locations. So they're trying to, like, bribe the casting people. And even big names are embarrassing themselves uh, to get roles. <laughs> Sue Mengers, who is a big-time, old-school Hollywood agent, calls uh, pitching her client, Rod Steiger. Uh, the person, the casting director she spoke to thought it was for the role of Vito because he's older. He At this point, he was, like, in his 40s. And she, she's like, no, 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 no. He wants to audition for the role of Michael. Now, this casting director literally burst out laughing, thinking she was joking because Michael's twenty five and like very youthful looking. And she was actually mad. She's like, well, I can't. I'm just calling for my client. Um, <laughs> you don't have to laugh in my face. Coppola quickly takes over casting. Like he's like, come on, this is bullshit. Uh, and he he also wants to go with, with authenticity. In some cases, most notably, notably hiring Gianni Russo for the role of Carlo Rizzo. Um, this is Connie's abusive husband in the movie. And he is actually the former right-hand man of Frank Costello. He has a memoir, which I feel like would make a good episode at some point. Um, because he was truly in the mob and became like an actor. He fucked everyone from Marilyn, according to him, to Leona Helmsley. But it's like, why would you... <laughs> <laughs> Why would you brag about Leon Helms? That that would be a great episode. Yeah, so he has like it's a memoir, and I'm sure it's it's full of lies, but it could be fun still. Um so the Oh sorry, when um when uh Gianni's legit attempts to land a role don't work, he also mentions he has powerful mob connections. He has them call casting. Uh, mentioning that they can do a favor if they even consider Gianni for a role. And he does eventually read for the part of Carlo. Now he has like an ad- audition with Talia Shire who will go on to play Connie. And or actually, no, it's a casting. It's like someone who works in casting. It's not Talia yet, but it's the role of Connie. And it, he does a really bad job. And the, everyone's like, just take a break, come back and we'll try it again. He gets wasted on Chablis during the break. And when he comes back into the read, He does this scene. This is a very famous scene in the movie where he literally beats the shit out of Connie. It's like a really horrifying scene. And he does it so well that they actually fear he might kill the casting person who was in the scene with him. Like he goes really far. Uh, And they actually stop the scene at some point. But they're like, you got the part. Wow. Wow. Because he's a very authentic, just come uh, alcoholic back, abuser. <laughs> just come back drunk on Juley. Yeah, he actually sends her flowers the next day. So, I guess. Um, now, Vic Damone has is initially cast as the washed up crooner Johnny Fontaine, but he dramatically drops out, giving a public statement that as an Italian American, his conscience wouldn't allow him to participate in such a movie that besmirches the good Italian name. <laughs> But the real reason is rumored to be the mob has pressured him to back out since they have sanctioned another singer to play the role, Al Martino. Now, <laughs> do you know this woman, Allison Martino? She does the LA vintage. That's his daughter. No way. Yeah. That's how she's kind of connected to like Hollywood. Her dad is Al Martino, who was like a Vegas lounge singer who plays this part in The Godfather. Wow. It's like his big uh, role. Now, he had his own history with the mob. Um, he had his his original manager when he started in the business, um, two mobsters were like, we want to buy Al Martino's contract. And the manager's like, no. And then they beat the shit out of the manager and they took over his contract after that so they could manage Al. He eventually fires these mobster managers and is warned to never go back east. He actually does go back east to go do a Lewis and Martin show in Atlantic City. And after the show, he's severely beaten up by some mobsters. He eventually moves to England to get away from it all. And he has a mob boss he meets um, in Europe broker his return to the States. He feels like he's earned the part just based on his history and his friends in high places who agreed to help him, like these mobsters. But uh, someone is also making things difficult for Martino to get cast, and that is Frank Sinatra. He's, oh. he's threatening all of these singers to not take this part. So people also think he told Vic Damone not to do it, and that's why Damone didn't do it. Right. But Al is definitely more vocal about what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, so Frank Sinatra apparently threatens Martino, saying he will be barred from Vegas if he <gasps> takes the part. <laughs> Imagine the horror. Um, but like in the movie, Fontaine, who when Fontaine had to convince the producer to cast him, That is the infamous horse head scene. Like that's how the mob convinced him to get the movie part. Martino also has to convince uh, Coppola to sign off on him because the mob wants him, but Coppola still hasn't agreed. Um, And that's where crime boss Russ Bufalino comes in to the picture and convinces him. This is um, who Martino credits as his godfather and the one who lands him the role. So who knows what Bufalino did? I feel like we've talked about him before. Possibly. So Coppola even manages to smooth things over with Sinatra, promising to minimize the Fontaine role at the end of the meeting. Um, he is shocked when Sinatra agrees to go along as long as the role is minimized. And he's like, hey, you know what? I'll play the godfather too. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And Francis has to kind of delicately back out, it. Like, oh, I don't know. We're not up there yet. Like, Because right. he doesn't want Sinatra. Uh, he already knows who he wants for the major roles. So he wants Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, uh, and perhaps his biggest coming con- conflict will be over his choice for Vito, which is Marlon Brando, like Mario Puzo. They agree on this one. Uh, Marlon's last decade has been an absolute fucking disaster. Um, he has been in bomb after bomb he has a really high fee so these movies just fucking tank and he's getting rich off of it but he does spend all his money so he constantly needs more he's he's entering his very unhealthy phase um and while filming one of his last movies Mutiny on the Bounty he created havoc on the set and was rumored to have given half the women on Tahiti the clap oh no like he was fucking everyone in Tahiti while he was there and it was just it created like a bad scene so Paramount was not having it. Uh, they wanted Ernest Borgnine for the role. <laughs> and they had um, other big stars were also vying for the role, including still Burt Lancaster. And Danny Thomas wanted to Wait. play the cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you imagine Danny Thomas in that role? No. There's ironic. no way. Danny Tom- Eggs Danny Thomas style. <laughs> That's a classic uh, Patreon bonus episode that you should definitely search for. Yep. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's gross. Ironically, Danny Thomas is inadvertently what leads to Brando being approached for the role. Puzo was at a weight loss (laughs) clinic. (laughs) In North Carolina, when he heard that Danny Thomas was trying to buy a controlling interest in Paramount solely to put himself in the, the role of the godfather, because <laughs> Danny Thomas has a lot of money, yes. like through TV. Puzo is panicked and he finds Marlon Brando's address and writes a letter to um, Marlon Brando. And on his address line, he puts, from a North Carolina fat farm. <laughs> <laughs> So he proceeds to beg Marlon to consider the role of the godfather in this letter. And Marlon actually gets the letter and like his assistant gives him this letter. At this point, he is desperate for a role because no one is hiring him and he really needs money, but he doesn't want to play a mafia don. Eventually, though, he finds out that Laurence Olivier is testing for the role of the godfather and he immediately is very interested when he hears that. Once again, professional jealousy helps push something forward. Now, Brando, as I mentioned, is Coppola's first choice. Um, but Stanley Jaffe, who is the president of Paramount at the time, is like, no way will Marlon Brando ever work for Paramount. <laughs> so Coppola finally gets him to agree to, to like consider Marlon Brando. But he has a, a list of agreements. Brando has to take way less salary. He has to put up a bond of $1 million to keep production on track, to keep him in line, not showing up late, not pulling all his bullshit on set. And he has to screen test. Now, this is unheard of for a star at Marlon Brando's level to have to go through a screen test. So Coppola... Kind of figures out a way to screen test him without Marlon actually knowing he's being (laughs) screen tested. Uh, So he makes a plan to go over to Marlon's house to film what he refers to as an improvised makeup test where they can practice different looks um, for the role of the godfather. They say when they arrive, they enter um, Marlon's all white living room and they're sitting around there. I love the all white living room. And Marlon enters the room. He's very soft-spoken. He has his long blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail. And he's wearing a kimono. Perfect. (laughs) Like, this is the Marlon Brando I always think of. Like, that period is just, like, iconic. Uh, And they also, this scene, by the way, in The Offer, the Marlon Brando role is played by Justin Chambers, who was uh, on Grey's Anatomy I can't. What's his name? Like Carav? I think he's kind of like the honky doctor, and he's actually pretty good. uh, Even though it's it's just weird to see anyone play Marlon Brando. So everyone is shocked as they watch him transform into Vito before their eyes. He darkens his hair with shoe polish. He pulls his ponytail back even more so it looks like he has short hair. He dabs on a thin mustache with the shoe polish polish, and he fills his cheeks with Kleenex uh, to make that like that you know, sound the voice, like he gets right. that voice and he, he gets the jolly. Cause the Godfather is also, the character is older than Marlon, who is like, I think 47 while they're filming it. And he's a much older character and everyone is blown away by this mesmerizing transformation. Um, Coppola even bypasses showing Evans the tape and takes it directly to Charles Bloodhorn in New York and everyone there is equally blown away. The tape has become legendary, but it's no longer, you can't, there's nowhere to ever see this tape, but it, it became like legendary in Hollywood. Now it's announced that Brando was cast, uh, after this tape is, you know, seen and the press Are really dismissive snarkly writing headlines like I thought an unknown person was going to be cast and oh Brando I I never heard of him like that kind of stuff (laughs) they're like mad about it but the casting wars had just begun now as I mentioned Evans had suggested Robert Redford for the role of Michael he also now is like what about Ryan O'Neill it's like what don't you get about Italian (laughs) Uh, and Coppola said (laughs) now Coppola says he wanted to smell the garlic coming (laughs) off of the (laughs) (laughs) and he had an actor in mind a young stage actor named Al Pacino Evans had never heard of him and he was furious furious to find out that Pacino was only 5'7 he's like a runt will never play Michael (laughs) and I'm like Robert Evans doesn't look that big to me either like what also 5'7 is like that's kind of like whatever average right uh, whatever. I mean, it's rude. So uh, all of his other choices were dismissed. So Coppola decides to go behind their backs and show them why they're wrong. He assembles Al, James Kahn, Robert Duvall, and Di- Diane Keaton to film secret scene te- screen test in San Francisco. He orders them lunch and has them all has them all sit around the table eating dinner in character like they're the family. The execs all hate it and they seriously consider firing Francis Ford Coppola after he pulls the shenanigans because he spent, like, money doing this. This leads to Robert Evans really trying to take control over the picture, and another battle between the old school and new school of filming uh, filmmaking begins. Eventually, Keaton and Duvall are cast after grueling screen testing. Like, they do some takes 100 times in this screen test to get these roles. Michael and Sonny are still not cast, And they actually piss off James Caan by testing him for almost every role, eventually leading him to storm off the Paramount lot, lot, telling them to shove the movie up their asses. Like, he's had it. He's so hot. I know. Uh, Evans is searching high and low for a Michael, and Coppola never gives up on Pacino. Meanwhile, he lands a perfect actor for the role of Fredo, theater actor John Cazal, and like Coppola sees him in a play and everyone almost immediately agrees. This is a slam dunk for Fredo. I mean, he's great. He's just a great actor. Now at this point, Khan is favored to play Michael and they actually cast another guy as Sonny. But this guy is also like a, a more amateur Italian guy <laughs> that they cast as Sonny. He thinks he gets the part, but it wasn't quite official yet. He goes out and parties with gangsters after winning this part. And the night ends with him being threatened to be thrown out of a car going at 90 miles an hour. And this gets back to Paramount. And they're like, no, like <gasps> we're not having this guy on the set because he's going to create trouble. Paramount drops him soon after. Now Khan, he now gets cast as Sonny and Evans has done an abrupt turn in regards to Pacino after seeing clips of him in Needle in the Park, a movie he has started filming during this process where he plays like a junkie. Panic in Needle uh, Park. Panic in Needle Park. Sorry. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? No. You know about it though. So that's that will end up being his first movie. Um, so he he's obviously great. Coppola arrives expecting to be fired. Um, Over his insistence that they hire Pacino, but now everyone's kind of like, okay, like all that fighting for nothing. Evans agrees to Pacino and has even used um, their, their mob connections that they have. Paramount has their own mob connections, a man named Sidney Korshak, to get him out of a movie he has just signed on to do for MGM who are building a casino at the time. So the mob guy's like, hey, you don't want that uh, casino to have any problems, do you? So he uses like threats of a union strike in order to get MGM to release Pacino from this contract. But a new war is about to start as filming begins, because this time it is the Italian-American Civil Rights League, who is le- which is led by Joe Colombo. They are vowing to stop filming by any means necessary, and they immediately began stalling production in every way they fucking can uh, to stop this, this movie from happening. Uh, and that's where we're going to leave off. Wow. So next up, we will get into the Italian-American Civil Rights League. Joe Colombo, who, if you don't recognize the name, he's a mob boss who also is doing this civil rights thing. Amazing. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of shit to go down in episode two. So great
0: episode, Dessie. That's where we
2: are. Good. Yeah. <laughs> what a great episode.
0: <laughs> All right. We will see you later this week for the mini episode. And subscribe to Patreon if you want to hear our after show. We do that after every main episode. Patreon.com slash yeah. Hollywood Crime Scene. If you want merch, HollywoodCrimeScene.com. We got lots of cool stuff up there. Okay, bye. Bye.